0: Sullivan's Private Meeting Room. I love how that's what this was called. I feel like it could be like a subtitle type for your podcast, Jennifer Sullivan's Private Meeting Room.
1: I know. Maybe that maybe I should have gone with that. Is that a J. Crew roll neck sweater?
0: Yes, one of maybe 25 I have.
1: I know. You have a very signature style.
0: It I feel like it from Perhaps mid-October until mid-April, I only wear the Crew roll neck sweater.
1: I mean, it, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs>
0: exactly, I've been wearing them and continuously buying them for, I don't know, 25 years maybe.
1: It does really suit you.
0: And I used to be able to get them on eBay for like nothing, for for like $10, $20. But now they have become trendy again and they're up to $80 mm-hmm. for a used one. So I I didn't really buy any more recently, but but for years I would I would buy them on the cheap.
1: I feel like 25 seems a good number to have like you can really rotate it i lot.
0: mean i easily have 25 i could have more i could have less but definitely um i'm a collector of roll neck sweaters
2: i
1: know well i feel like you are kind of a collector in general like you have you i mean like i mean it when i said you have a very signature style like Fashion-wise, I feel like the same is true of your work. Like, it kind of permeates your whole life.
0: Definitely. I feel like... I absolutely get that from my parents because they are inveterate collectors of all kinds of different objects, but they're not that kind of, like, fussy, serious collector who, like, only collects 18th-century bronzes. Yeah. (laughs) Like, they, they just collect all kinds of interesting weird things from something high-end to something super low-end to to any just anything and so i really picked up on on that sensibility and i'm probably a little bit more fussy about my collecting mm-hmm. um, than they are but yeah i mean i definitely find that in my art all that permeates there too
1: yeah like i feel like you have all these things that you love and you feel like really strongly about and it could be, it's like a whole range of things like.
0: Well, it's really, there's a, a fine line between collecting stuff, but not wanting to be overly attached to it. And I find that often the nature of collecting is becoming really attached to things and identified to things, to objects and and that to me is, is a really interesting friction point because part of me loves to own and have all this cool stuff, but another part of me would also love to just be living in a monastic cell with nothing. And so I try to not cling to all that stuff too much, like sort of take it with a grain of salt. Um, although I can understand why the Egyptians wanted to be buried with everything.
2: that makes
1: sense i mean you are we're speaking from your beautiful studio that is like i mean i feel like your studio and your home is like always being kind of curated and it's like i feel like it is like a work of art and um
0: yeah my well my husband Corey is also an artist but he hasn't been making a lot of stuff recently since we moved upstate to warwick my hometown but he has told me recently that he feels like the house is his work of art that he's expressing himself and his creativity to put things together and arrange things with colors and shapes and forms in the house itself and in the sort of art of living so i think there's something really beautiful about that too
1: yeah, totally. I mean, I totally agree like having been a guest there a few times, like it feels like I don't know, it's very inspiring like I feel the joy of just like looking at beautiful things and I don't know, the care of like approaching life as an art in a way or something.
0: Well, care is really important too because I feel like, you know, as we collect stuff and build a life together in a house and we've been doing this now for a long time um you you do become a custodian of that Mm -hmm. stuff like you know anything we collect or we buy or we make we're merely just sort of transient keepers of and who knows you know it'll all probably outlive us and so it'll be interesting to just you know live with it for now and and let it pass on for later.
2: Yeah.
1: I feel like, I I feel like, um, yeah. I do feel like it rises above mere like interior decoration. Not that that's
2: not, I would say
0: almost nothing that we have or buy has a superficial sort of positioning. Like, I feel like everything is we really discuss everything and we think about it and we it really has like a story and a, Time and a place attached to it. It's not just like, oh, let's buy this blue book because we like the color of it. It's not, you yeah.
1: know. Yeah, and it is like it feels like it is like truly a collaboration with you and Corey, and even like it's like the way you put it all together, which I think speaks to your work
2: and well, we have, such,
0: we have such different sensibilities aesthetically, mm. but somehow we. We always meet in the middle, and that middle is really good.
1: Yeah, it's beautiful.
0: Yeah, so there's something to be said for compromise. You know, people sometimes think compromise means watering down, but I think that compromise ends up actually sometimes making the most beautiful thing.
1: Yeah, I think it's good for, I think like, like you guys are in a way, your creative uh, style, I would say, is very op- opposite. Would you agree with
0: that? You mean in terms of art making or just in general?
1: Yeah, in terms of art making, like Corey's work is very kind of like hmm,
2: low
1: low labor and very like I don't know, would it be in the wabi sabi category? Yeah,
0: sort of like Richard Tuddley wabi sabi. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, like low low fi. Yeah.
2: Work.
0: Yeah, totally. And mine is like very Bussy in particular and and time. Like Corey will say to me, oh, I spent three hours on this piece. I'm exhausted. Like, I can't believe I spent so much time on it. And I'm like, three hours? I spend eight hours and I feel like I've gone like, you know, an inch by an inch in my artwork
1: (laughs) and I'm much more in the Cory camp kind of but and I feel like I was just remembering the last time I visited I was saying he's like a poet like a haiku poet and you're like a novelist or something
0: totally yeah my work is definitely like Proustian and Cory is like you know Lao Tzu
1: yeah so I was just listening to the book of the Tao on YouTube today which was
0: like the greatest thing ever
1: I know and I so I was thinking about it and relate like so I feel like in a way we're opposite-ish artists but we have a lot of common interests like spirituality and quotes and (laughs) things like that and I was like yeah I feel like there's things about the way you work I don't understand that maybe we can kind of
0: well, it's interesting that you would even say that because I feel like you and I have one of, in my life, I think probably the longest professional relationship. Yeah. And I've known you as an artist for like 16 years or something.
2: I know. I
0: mean, since we were at Parsons together in like 2004. Yeah. You know, so we've really seen each other's work like over the long haul,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, which I think is really, Such a beautiful thing. Like I, I feel like I really appreciate that. And when I was thinking of like when you said you wanted to interview me, I'm like, what's there to talk about? We've like been talking about our work for 16 plus years, but of course, there's always there's always things to talk about.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and it is interesting. Like I love that we have that shared history, which I was thinking about a bit in preparation. Like just like seeing you grow and evolve although I feel like a lot of things maybe you could say about both our work like the more things change the more things stay the same (laughs) like um I was remembering this is random but well one thing I think is that I wanted to kind of draw out in a way like I was like I feel like you're such a silly and funny person but I And I think there's a playful spirit to your work, but it's not necessarily the thing that I, it's not the top of the list of things. It's a bit of a dry playfulness or something. But I was remembering there was like this, um, there was just like a plantain chip on a nail in your studio, which was very Richard Tuttle. And I thought it was like the best thing ever. And you were like, I don't even think, I mean, it it doesn't, I don't know. You didn't. I think really think much of it. It was just a funny thing you did.
0: I have a very vivid memory of that plantain chip that was like in like a sewing needle. It was like in like a thin little yeah. sewing needle nail. It was very graphically beautiful. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And but then in a way, like you do like bring objects and installation into your work and stuff. So maybe it's not so random. But I thought that was so funny and Cool. <laughs> but it's almost the exact opposite of how most of your paintings would happen, which is very, yeah, like rigorous and labor intensive and exacting and, and all these things.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. Like there were definitely parts in grad school where you were just sort of super encouraged to get funky and get weird and like let your free flag fly. And I definitely took advantage of that. And it and it definitely pushed me into some really open and interesting places that I still, like, I definitely feel like earlier in my career, I had a little bit more of that sort of silly, playful stuff around. And it sometimes comes out a little bit, but I feel like I've gotten more sort of tightened up or not. I don't know if that's the right word, but, I've been working much more painterly for the past eight years or so, less sort of installationally, more like focused on the process of oil on canvas, like oil painting and what that does and what that's about. Yeah. Um, but, but But I still throw onto the wall like weird vases with like plastic flowers in them. And there still is an, uh, there's always an element of like a little cheekiness or like I was doing those paintings of the vases with giant boners. Yeah. That was, you know, that sort of throws, like, so it's never actually all that serious. I never want it to all be like overly serious or tight, tight-lipped, tight you know, there, are, there just gotta be a little bit of love. Yeah, and you have
1: that, like, this is kind of, well, that makes me think of a couple of things, like, one of which is you made that like um, bathroom installation in one of your shows, which like- was
0: Like the graffiti, of, like it was like yeah. a bathroom that was all graffitied with a urinal I put in there. And yeah.
2: Like,
0: yeah, and that stuff is really fun for me and, and puts together the seriousness of my painting into something a little bit more full and rich and deep. And, yeah. but I want them to sort of, I mean, that's what I love about having exhibitions is when you can really... It doesn't rely on, like, the discrete object, but the whole Gesamtkunstwerk, like, the whole thing all together. Yeah. And it becomes, like, a bigger idea.
1: Yeah, I think it's a good... It's a good opportunity to, like, really make a statement or pull different things together. or It's like making an album or something.
0: I definitely always thought of exhibitions as as like albums like you like all the paintings are sort of like separate songs yeah that all are, are different but they work together some are more pop some are more slow some are you know and then you put them all together and it becomes this big thought that you know becomes the exhibition and i feel like instagram with the sort of singularity of imagery has sort of had the same detrimental effect that like something like Spotify has with music
2: yeah. is that
0: it's all driven by like the single. It's all driven by like the one image. It's not about like who, you know, how many people really listen to like an actual album from start to finish
1: anymore? I know, I mean, who, who makes albums that are good enough to do that?
0: <laughs> I mean, that's definitely another question but i feel like that that's the way it's sort of with instagram is there you, you just see all these sort of di- dis, distended imagery uh, that doesn't have a lot of context mm-hmm. and and it's hard to you know put it all together
1: yeah and we i feel like we're both of the similar age where we did kind of grow up with this more album
0: based mentality that and the solo show mentality I feel like both you and I coming out of grad school was very much about like having like a solo show and putting it together and and it's one idea and it's all really fleshed out and I, I I don't even think that like that's as big of a deal anymore um I mean it certainly is for me. Yeah. But I don't know if that if that is has the same kind of primacy in the art world as it used to.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I've been moving I feel like I was more the interdisciplinary vibe and I but I've more as I get older now I'm turning more towards a traditional, more like focused orientation, which feels kind of radical in its non-radicality or something.
0: Right, well, same with me. Like, I feel like like you as well have, have definitely turned more towards painting and exploring the language of painting more than you did when you were younger.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was making paintings, but I didn't even, I would never have called myself a painter in grad school, like, even though I made yeah. paintings, yeah. But that's um, another grad school memory that when you said about the boner paintings, you you once, like gave me this drawing of like a guy with a huge boner in your style, which I think came out of an assignment where you were asked to do something you would never do. And so it's interesting that you did finally come around to boner paintings.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That was an assignment that Brian Toll gave us that was make a work of art that you wouldn't necessarily want it to be part of your like, you know, oeuvre. Yeah, and, and yeah, so I, I did a bunch of pornography drawings of like images of guys and I then like embroidered um, with pencil like you know their cock.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> totally. Oh. And now I, that could easily be in my artwork. Who cares? You know?
1: I know it's interesting. Do you feel like like there was a shit like a shift that where sexuality became more like open territory in the work?
0: I think as my work and like when my work had a lot to do with Egypt and Egyptology there's very little like sex in there. Yeah. But when my work started to become more preoccupied with ancient Greece and and the imagery of that and the sort of philosophies of that sex is much more prevalent. Right. Um, especially what we would now call homosexual sex was um, yeah. much more prevalent. And so that, that created an opening for me to explore a sort of cheeky sexuality and like a weird like queerness because there's a lot of like gender shifting that happened in ancient Greece mm-hmm. and a lot of, you know, Homosexuality, different instances of homosexuality that happened, and and it comes out in the plays and in the imagery and vase painting, and so I really picked up on that, and that so that sort of did create an opening for me to explore sex through.
1: Yeah, which I so you know much more about history than I do, so I'm gonna defer to you, but um, my sense is that like. Is this correct that that homosexual sex was like just a part of sexuality, like the terrain of nor, nor, like normative sexuality?
0: Yeah, well, it didn't really have. They didn't have a name for it in ancient Greece. Um, it was more like uh, it was often seen as like a rite of passage mm-hmm. that uh, older. Guy, and when I say older, I don't mean like 60, I mean like older, like 30 or 40. Mm -hmm. um, Would take sort of under his wing a younger boy who is like, I don't know, 13 or 14 or something, and would sort of show them all the ways of the world. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's part of like the inculcation of like culture and civilization and all that stuff, like together it wasn't it wasn't sort of sexually deviant necessarily in the way that we would look at it today Mm -hmm. Um, because it was a different culture it was a different time we have different moralities and mores and beliefs and and whatnot now and so that's perfectly fine um so it needs to be looked at through its historical context
1: yeah but would it be more like so and then you would probably have a wife or something after. You yeah, know? generally you
0: would, you would have a wife and and, the, and so it wouldn't be like you were... You know, it's also tied up with this symposium which was like the, the space, the, the living and drinking and philosophical space that men would,
2: mm-hmm.
0: would really attune themselves into and it would be a, a space where they would discuss ideas and usually drink a lot and it was part of the cult of Dionysus, which really interests me. Mm. A lot of my work now has to deal, deals with the ancient mystery cults, the sort of pre-Christian, ancient Greek uh, mystery cults, which worshiped all these different deities and had all these rituals and belief systems that, that a lot of my artwork is preoccupied with
2: now. Yeah. Tell
1: me more about that, like what interests you about it or what they actually might do in the cult?
0: Well, they really were cults in the sense that like in the Catholic church, you have like the cults of, of Mary or cults of certain saints where you pray for their intercession in your life and you give them sacrifices and you pray to them and you have rituals that surround their life and their imagery so it was the same in ancient greece so with dionysus there was called the retinue of dionysus which were these women called maenads, which were sort of like transgendered people they they were sort of women but they were also sometimes men and they sort of swapped gender identities and 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 they would get whipped up into a frenzy and they'd be dancing around with these long sticks with pine cones on them called Fissaris. And they would sort of work the, themselves into a spiritual frenzy and be speaking in tongues. And it was all about opening up that space of Dionysus, that, that, mm-hmm. that weird liminal space between control and being out of control where you can access creative powers and energies. So the cult of Dionysus usually revolved around some kind of letting go of, of any kind of uptight morals. Or yeah. you know, If you've ever read Nietzsche's Birth of Tragedy, it, it, he really goes into the dialectics of Apollo and Dionysus, that Apollo is the, the part of us, the part of of humans that's all about rationality and following rules and enlightenment. And Dionysus is the part of us that's much more um creative and and sloppy and and full of life and just sort of letting shit go. And so Nietzsche believes that our culture has gone too far Apollonian. We're too, we chase the enlightenment too much, and that we don't let any of the Dionysian into our lives. And and that also plays into Carl Jung and that idea of the tension of the opposites that mm-hmm. you have to sort of hold the Apollonian and the Dionysian together and find that middle space where they can sort of both be used and coexist.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Like I have not read that Nietzsche but I was reading some Camille Paglia recently and I think she's kind of on that tip too of like, that maybe even women represent the Dionysian more than the Ap- Apollonian, because um, they're like chaotic and dark and like grotesque or something. Definitely.
0: Yeah, the the women sort of represent the womb and the, the dark womb and the yeah. battle. you know. Whereas uh, Apollo is the god of the sun and bright, you know, brightness and sort of shining a light on stuff. And so there are those sort of gender assignments to those. But then again. I would argue that that following too closely to those assignments is what leads us to some kind of extremism and right. the inability to really be holistic and complete. Yeah. To individuate okay. as young. Yeah. People.
1: <laughs> so I mean, so like, yeah, I think it's really interesting, like this idea of the Dionysian is coming in because I do think I would and maybe you might disagree or I'm curious what you think but I feel like I might I might put your work more in the Apollonian sensibility
0: Superficially, it is and that and that's actually the interesting that's like the intersection where I'm trying to work is yeah it appears sort of superficially Apollonian and and Apollonian is all about a superficiality Mm. But then I'm trying to infuse it. My my aim is to infuse it more with an underlying or conceptual Dionysian aspect.
1: That's cool. I'm into that.
0: So I, you know, I don't know necessarily how always successful that is, but that's a sort of liminal space that I'm trying to work in because I, I realize that it can come off as being extremely Apollonian. Mm-hmm. And, but you know, if you, if you look at a lot of the newer work I'm doing. There's a lot of surface tensions, so I have a surface that's very sort of Jackson Pollocky, mm-hmm. with a tighter impasto on t- like on top of that. So yeah. there's like a tension between different kinds of surfaces in my work. So I see that a little bit as bringing in a Dionysian element.
2: Yeah,
1: and even like I was thinking about like it, you you have a lot of like patterning and like. Ge- geometry and stuff, but there's also, like, a lot of fragmentation and, like... Oh, wait, there's body. always...
0: My geometry never follows, like, a strict rule or pattern. Like, it's really... It is sort of all over the place and very intuitive. I never <laughs> copy my... Like, my patterns are never copied from originals. Like, I look at originals, I'm inspired by them, but but the patterns that I make are, are almost almost hundred percent intuitive. I mean sometimes I will take a direct pattern. Like I took this little teeny pattern from a vase and I really blew it up or I enlarged it really big and it sort of abstracted it to a certain degree. And so sometimes I borrow directly, but a lot of the time it's just very intuitive.
1: Yeah. But that is I'm interested in that. Like it feels like um like how do you start a word? Like it feels like it's it feels very mapped out,
0: but is it actually? It's not. that 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 definitely is a a paradox of the work because it looks like it's probably been really planned out, but but it isn't. I, I almost start with like a scribble on a napkin practically. Mm. Of, in like I have like a studio sketchbook and I'll just sort of scribble some stuff out. and it starts from an image in my mind's eye. And it stays an image really in my mind's eye almost until it's, it's done. I don't do any kind of like Photoshop, like sort of building the image beforehand that I'm going to work from and then try to like match colors and all that stuff. Like it looks like it might be that way, but it absolutely is not. Like it's, it, the process is very fumbling and intuitive and I almost never know what I'm doing until it's being done, which also I think, is a paradox because it, like, again, the work totally looks yeah. like it's done with so much pre-planning and ideas, but that's why a lot of it fails. Like, like I, I sometimes work on a painting for three months and I don't like it and I will destroy it because it just didn't work out. And the way that I work, I can't really, I can't scrape it all off once it's sort of attached and hardened onto the substrate. sometimes after like three four months of making a painting i just have to say ah fuck it It didn't work out and let go how does that feel is
2: that
1: like heartbreaking or are you kind of like
0: it's both heartbreaking and liberating to to be able to just say you know what it was four months of an experience and a process because i always teach that to my students that that one of the most important parts of making art is the process and you know you even named your podcast like it's a process, and and so I often do projects with my students where at the end I tell them to throw it away. Like yeah. after they've worked for three hours on a drawing, I'm like, okay, now like rip it up and throw it away, or crumble crumble it up and throw it away. And there's always like a huge amount of resistance, of course.
2: Yeah. But
0: I I tell them that that this is all about enjoying the process. It's the same with. I just saw a quote actually, and you know, you and I love like inspirational quotes. I saw a quote that was about something about like how life is the process. It's a process of living. It's not like an end result. Um, You've got to just live it in a process. And so that, I always try to teach art as like a way of life because none of my students I mean, really, almost none of my students are going to become professional artists. Yeah. So I, I think it's much more important to teach art as like a way of life and a creative problem-solving
2: yeah.
0: situation that they can then, you know, if they become like a, a accountant or a police officer or some kind of job, they can think a little more open and creatively, a little, a little more left brain thinking.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, I think... I imagine you are a very inspiring teacher and I feel like
0: to those who are open to it, but yeah. to those who are not, I think I can be very
1: <laughs> frustrating. Well, yeah, I feel like if they know what's good for them, they would like be open. Cause I feel like maybe part of the way our culture is a bit like losing its soul or something. It's like, because people don't, yeah like have a creative or or interior kind of relationship or something i definitely
0: stress developing an interior life through art i mean i'm definitely one of those teachers who gets like very mixed reviews like (laughs) i i would say the majority of students say like that you know the class was really great and i learned you know to look at things like an artist or i learned really creative processes but then other students are like if you want to listen to weird music take this class or you know if you want to hear like if you want a critique that sounds like a fortune cookie like take this class you know so there's always students who are resistant to a more like mystical side of artwork because i've always been a big fan of like the bruce nauman like artists reveal mystical truths like
2: yeah maybe i
0: have taken that too seriously but i feel like if artists don't then who the hell is
1: i know i'm all i'm on board with it but yeah I, i can see how i mean when i think back to teaching at like a state school i I wanted to do that kind of stuff, but I had a sense that no one was really going to be there for it.
0: But that's where it's more important. Like I I teach at public colleges and that's where I feel like if you're teaching at like a funky art school, like Hampshire College or like Bennington College or a place like that, everyone's already thinking like that. They already expect that kind of bullshit, but like at a, like a public school system, public college, like you're coming from left field. Like you're showing, you're introducing stuff to them that they are like, holy shit, like, what is this? And I think that that is super valuable.
1: No, totally. And I got that. I mean, I, yeah, I agree. Like in some ways it's more valuable there, but in a way you have to start, I felt like I had to start more from like square one kind of like
0: definitely yeah but but the challenge is to start from square one but still make it really interesting yeah they'll make it really about about the process and about them and about creating a point of view all that still is really relevant even if it's super introductory
1: yeah i feel like it's like a lot of breaking like breaking through and even unlearning things like Like if you've been kind of soaked in just like crappy, non, I don't know. Like I think of just all the crap video and just, not that it's all crap. I love pop culture in some ways, but just there's a lot of, I don't know, barnacles
0: that- I'm really inspired by Paul Tech's Mm -hmm. like list of questions that he asks his students. And so I, I took that idea and every semester, like the first class, I give them a questionnaire.
2: Because mm-hmm. I
0: love like I personally love like answering questions. Like I love, I always love like questionnaires and surveys and stuff. So the first day of class, I give them a two-page questionnaire with like the most ridiculous questions, like like really thought-provoking sort of co-on questions, but also personal questions like, you know, name one unique thing about you or You know, but one of the questions I ask is, can you name an artist that might be considered famous? Mm. And I almost only ever get Van Gogh and Picasso. And sometimes Frida Kahlo and so often Basquiat. (laughs) But that, or maybe like Da Vinci, you know, like or Michelangelo, but there's really only like six artists that like the general public seems to like know about. (laughs) And it's always been perplexing to me like, where they're being inculcated with that even that knowledge right. you know? <laughs> and and then how can I work to like at least expand their base knowledge of of artists like
2: yeah I feel like it, I think
1: that I think the questionnaire sounds awesome I remember trying to use the pulse X questions and it kind of totally flopping and I like
0: you gotta invent your idea. own because his are even too far out that, yeah. like unless you're at a really funky art school no one's gonna get there
1: yeah but um I feel like it makes me kind of sad I mean it doesn't surprise me but it's a little sad how how sequestered art is in most people's lives like a lot I of hate people-
0: that and that's exactly why I like teaching at public colleges and schools that that aren't like so like necessarily artsy I mean I taught at art school I've taught at Cooper Union and Pratt before and like I love those students and I love those places but when I'm when I've been teaching at like more liberal arts schools I love bringing in more of the liberal arts into the art assignments
1: I think that's great like I mean I feel like I only went to art school and I feel a little bit like I don't know, handicapped by it or something like there's a lot of kind of literature and things I don't know, or that I've had to kind of start to teach myself, like a larger worldview, basically.
0: Totally. Well, it's the, it's part of the over-professionalization of our society. It's like the, everyone's siloed, everyone like picks a lane and that's all they learn and stick with. And I resisted going to art school. I, when I was coming out of high school, I looked at some art schools I visited RISD, and I went to you know look at different art art programs and and I just felt like it was too siloed, it was too strict for me, and so I wanted to be much more in like a liberal arts environment, so I could even my artwork in general now, even though it's very much painting and drawing, I'm still always reading and doing research and exploring and traveling, and that becomes part of it, and it's still very like multidisciplinary in that way
1: yeah totally I feel like that I feel like I that is very you feel like a very well-rounded person like you have all these things that you do like you garden and you go to the um community and I don't know like you're always seeming to have all these different areas that you're investigating, and which leads into your art in some way, but maybe not in a direct way.
0: I think it just leads into just just a creative exploration of life.
2: Yeah,
0: I mean, I really do believe that we're we're here to learn and grow and evolve. Mm-hmm. And it took me a long time to really figure that out. yeah, I've always been in in it. In a search though, I mean, one of the things I loved about living in New York City so much was I was always taking classes. Like I always mm-hmm. just like, botany classes or Irish language classes or, you know, literature classes or just all kinds of ballet classes. I just like was always taking all these weird classes and stuff because I thought like, well, why the hell not? Like all this stuff is out there. It all feeds into the art anyway, whether or not In fact, it's so, it's boring if it obviously fed into the art. I think it's much more interesting when it seeps in strange ways.
1: Yeah, I feel like you're a very um, intellectually curious and like lifelong learner and I don't
0: know. Totally, if I was independently wealthy, I think the thing I would do was just be constantly in school, like getting mm. degrees. Like, like I, I'd be like always enrolled in like yeah. obscure PhD programs and stuff. And cause I love, like, I yeah, I'm just, I love, I love learning and I do it still on my own all the time, but I'm much more preoccupied with having to make a living yeah being at like every fucking school in the world and like constantly working on art, painting <laughs> and building a house and gardening and everything it you know it's it's definitely a lot
1: i know but, yeah you're very like busy and um you have a lot going on
0: but, but i still go to bed at like you know nine thirty, ten o'clock at night on a good night
1: <laughs> yeah um it makes me like I get I was getting I don't feel it right now, but I was getting a bit jealous of my students at times of like, God, it seems so fun to be a student and they don't even like appreciate how liberating it is.
0: I I'm so annoying because I lecture them on that all the time. I'm like, hey guys, this is your last chance to like really explore a ton of stuff. Like, so I'm always like, take weird classes, like take. Like this is your last. This is one of your last opportunities that you can sort of freely just like yeah, screw around a little bit.
1: You know? And your yeah, like your main focus is just learning and like ex- like experimenting. Like that's a dream. <laughs> and they're like on their Instagram posting their memes and stuff.
0: Really, <laughs> so you've got a long time. To- you know, a long time of working hard, making a living.
2: But um. Yeah, there's a couple of
1: things. Um, Let's try to get back into you a little more. Um, um, Well, kind of along the lines of learning and research and, and the process of your work, I was like, I don't know, thinking about this idea of history and antiquity, but like, like you were saying, you are on this constant like searching journey or something and, and like the relationship of that personal search to the kind of historical search. I was like, oh, Tim's like
0: a miraculous <laughs> <But> that- <laughs> a search of the miraculous.
1: Yeah. I was like, oh, you're an archaeologist of the soul.
0: <laughs> oh, that's actually the title of a a book about Carl Jung.
1: Oh, I think his one is map of the soul, but yeah, I was yeah.
0: One that's that's like oh, archaeology. Someone, I think a union analyst wrote one that was called like archaeology of the soul. Totally, wow, Jennifer, I love that. <laughs>
2: right?
1: I was like, cause um, I don't know. Yeah, it just hit me because I was just mulling for like that. This yeah, this interest in history is also part. Is very much like your personal kind of uncovering yourself
2: through that
0: yeah well we all have a history you know we're all living history yeah the fact that history is irrelevant is obviously nonsense i mean and history is in some respects doesn't even exist because really all that exists is the here and the now so history is sort of like a memory Mm -hmm. construct so I'm fascinated with that. So in a lot of my work is about rebuilding and connecting. Like, did you ever, did you ever like the indigo girls? I can't remember. No. Not
1: particularly, but I, I like that you like them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, they have a song called Virginia Woolf. And mm-hmm. it's about how you can communicate with people through time through artwork.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: it's like they like in the song they call it like a telephone line through time. And, and I j- I've always loved that idea. And so to me, one of the most fun and radical parts of my work is I sometimes take a motif of graffiti that's like 2000 years old mm-hmm. and I use it in my artwork
2: mm-hmm.
0: and I riff on it. I repeat it. I ex- enlarge it. And so to me, the idea of like, here's this little scribble in a wall that someone carved 2000 years ago and they are so long gone now like they are that person is so long dead
2: (laughs) here
0: i am now in the 21st century using that carving that glyph in my contemporary artwork and i'm in dialogue with them like i'm actually in like some kind of conversation albeit it's abstract but But I'm in some kind of connection with this person from thousands of years ago. And so to me, that that there's something really high about that. There's something that makes me really feel like something deeper is happening here. It touches something timeless.
2: Yeah. And I think mm, like the kind of
1: yeah, that resonates with me a lot. And I, I was thinking about how like the kind of like, Mm, cliche of graffiti is like saying like you know so and so was here or something in a way the like core of graffiti is to say like I was here I existed
0: which is really the essential element I mean in like (laughs) Gurdjieff work we always talk about I am like Mm. I exist like you know to, to really be as fully Present to your existence as possible because it's so fleeting, and and it's the only way to touch something more eternal is being in touch with that essence of existence. Yeah. So, it's, I, so it's beautiful that that's you're totally right about that. That graffiti really comes from a feeling of I amness.
1: Yeah. Even like even like you could say cave paintings are very graffiti like in a way of just like yeah trying to make some impression of the ephemeralness of
2: being
0: totally and that's also i think one of the things that speaks to me about the ancient world is that it feels both far removed from us but also completely still relevant and congruent mm. like Just because certain things happened 2,500 years ago in Greece, in ancient Greece, doesn't mean they're any less relevant to the present moment. In fact, they're still very much with us. It's all still very much alive. And so, to me, it's there's something sort of radical about being in the present, contemporary moment, but also being in dialogue with something that happened so long ago. I mean, that's just like my, that's just my jam.
1: Yeah, totally. I'm, I, mean, you know, it's where, I mean, I liked what you were saying about um, that in a way, all history is kind of imagine, imagined or something. Like it's all, because it no longer exists, like we can only imagine it and it's only kind of subjective or something. You know, I have
0: no problem with with fiction because I feel like in a way, like all history is fiction to a certain degree. And so my artwork even though I'm borrowing a lot of imagery or motifs from antiquity, it's all actually abstracted. It's all really fiction, but it's sort of like, like non-fiction fiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It holds in on itself, so it's all sort of an open field to play in.
1: Yeah, which I, that makes me think of Rumi, but I've already quoted Rumi in another episode, but.
0: I oh, mean, the Rumi quote of "There's a There's an open field. Like, meet me in it."
1: Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it is just a great quote, though. Also, but <laughs>
0: um, well, that's because that's where you want to play. Like that. Yeah. Like that's where where you're not restricted, where you're not necessarily restrained. Like I, I love the surface of a painting because when you start it, it is like an open field. Mm-hmm. Like anything can happen. Any mark can lead to something else. And yeah. And so often, like I was saying in my paintings, it looks like it's all like planned out, but it isn't. Like I approach the blank canvas as as like an open field that I'm just plopping myself down in, and we'll see what happens,
2: yeah, that makes me think of um
1: well, i I kind of lost my chance at thought, but, um, oh, that you're kind of you're you're like obsession with time or history is actually about a kind of like timelessness, not about antiquity per se, but in a way that it, it kind of is still- I think
0: through, through art, there is a timelessness. Like there's also that great quote, like life is short, art is long. Mm-hmm. You know, that through like art is a way we're processing our life. Art is a way that we're leaving our thoughts behind and our self behind mm-hmm. and, and there's something that is beautiful about that that we're gonna have to leave it behind like it was like yeah. i was saying at the beginning of this conversation like those things that we make we eventually just have to let go of either through by selling them and letting them go or or by you know when we don't exist anymore mm-hmm.
1: and it's like uh it's a kind of yeah, there's something beautiful about that duality of, like, it, it kind of conjures the fact that we know we're going, we're going to, that our work will outlive us or something, and our desire for immortality, maybe that's not, that we know is impossible.
0: Well, then what you really judge a civilization by is by what they made. I mean, if you look mm-hmm. back at, like, all the great civilizations what we remember them by is what they constructed, what the art that they made. Yeah. So really, I, I always angers me when I feel like people don't value the, like, the cultural value of art when they don't understand that. So I try to instill that in my students too, that like what you're doing is important. What you're doing is part of the culture. Like you're creating the culture that, that the future will judge us by. Yeah. That's that's a lot to hold in, in your hands, you know. It's a it's a I big know. responsibility, but I think it's worth it's worth pondering. Let's put it that way.
1: Sure. I mean I would, yeah, I wish I wish it were more pervasive, kind of part. I feel like sad for people that don't have a creative outlet or
0: something. But it can be harsh like to like sometimes I feel like I overly criticize artwork. Like I'll go to a show and I'll look at a work of art and I'll be like, well, why the hell did they make this? Like, yeah. what, would, like what, what was driving them to make this? Like, what, why is this important to the world or important to them? And, and I know that in some ways that's sort of like a conservative way of thinking, but to me it's also an essentialist way of thinking like what's the essence of this piece like like Cezanne said get to the heart of what is before you
2: mm.
0: like don't just superficially tackle it but like really dive deep into it
2: yeah. because
0: that's part of that of being human
2: yeah
1: totally i mean i think i also tend to i feel like i feel the same way although if i'm trying to be more positive i'm like well even just doing anything is kind of slightly heroic these times like to do anything that you don't i don't know just showing up and making something is admirable in and of itself even if i don't like the thing people made but i feel like in a way we have a responsibility to counterbalance the kind of emptiness of of culture at or that art is kind of responsible for nourishing us in a deeper way more than just like echoing the kind of mm, i don't know bankruptcy of our times or something
0: but it's also i, I imagine that most people would say that their times are bankrupt anyway mm. and- always a pervasive cynicism about like one's culture and the time you know everyone always thinks they're living in like end times
2: right
0: going back like you know thousands of years everyone's always thought they're living in end times which which is why when people say oh we're living in end times i just sort of roll my eyes i'm like it's it's always the end of the world for somebody that's
1: a good point i mean i try to i mean I just want, I feel like what part of what is meaningful about making art is like, or for me at least, that I want it to be hopeful and just the idea of creating meaning out of my life is innately kind of hopeful.
0: Um, Well, I think that I used to have a quote on my computer years ago and I think it was attributed to Carl Jung. And, it, and he said, the meaning of life is to make meaning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I feel like that can't be underscored enough. I mean, that, that's what we do. That's what humans do. Anything that happens, we try to make meaning out of it. Yeah. And, and so if you're not trying to make meaning out of it, in a way you're almost not even living.
1: Exactly. And it's like... Not, and that's like our own personal responsibility to make it for ourselves, like rather than inherit. I feel like that's part of what young and individuation is all about. Is like you shouldn't you shouldn't be taking anyone's like word as authority, like you or your own authority.
0: Totally. Well, that's that's what Gurdjieff always says too. Is don't don't believe what I'm saying to you try it out for yourself and see if my ideas resonate yeah and if they don't you know that's fine and if they do great and i feel like we all have to find our own resonating tone you know Yeah.
1: which um that i feel like there was another thing about timelessness that seems appropriate to gurdjieff and your work and stuff like um like time the timelessness of being in the now i feel like is like we started to talk about of how your process is very like mm, i don't know meditative you could say and and i think i don't know everything about gurjeef at all but my sense is it's about like being in real direct contact with doing actions kind of um yeah
0: Definitely, but it's very hard to actually do work on oneself while you're making art because art is so subjective.
2: Mm.
0: A lot of the idea of, of Gurdjieff work is to try to actually be as objective as possible while you're doing something. So often the Gurdjieff work comes out of doing some kind of really simple menial task like sweeping the floor or weeding, things that you're not necessarily, your personality isn't identified with. So, working on it, a, wor- a piece of art, it's hard for me to sort of remove myself from it in a way that I can be objective and completely simultaneous and totally present.
2: Right. You
0: know what I mean? Because we're so tied into it in our personality and our ego and our subjectivity.
1: Sure, that makes sense. I mean, that was making me think of that thing like chop wood, carry water or whatever. Totally.
0: Those are very quotidian activities, but that, that's where the heart of actual like living is. Like if you can if you can like wash the dishes and be hundred percent present to mm-hmm. that, that's much more sort of spiritually effective or moving or essential than trying to do it in some like lazy way.
1: Right. But I was thinking like that your work kind of holds some of that in the sense that you do have to do like just push paint around in a super repetitive way. And I wonder if that was like something you built into it or it's just your natural inclination.
0: Well, I've often said like sometimes when I'll post an image of my art on Instagram, like painting, I'll say painting is chopping wood and carrying water. Because to a certain degree,
2: oh. there is
0: something about painting that is very much like pushing paint around a surface. Yeah. It's very basic. Mm-hmm. And so there are some times where I don't necessarily think that you can do the sort of Gurdjieff work doing that, but you certainly can do a very present activity where you, where, you, know, you can be in the here and the now while you're doing that. Yeah. Um, And I I especially love when I've got like a painting project that I'm just sort of working on that I don't have to make decisions. Like I hate making compositional decisions. I like it when I can just execute something that I've already made the decision. And in that execution there, I can sort of let myself be more present. But when I'm making any kind of decision, I'm I'm completely there, but as like my personality and my ego.
1: Yeah which is like, yeah, I feel that way. Like I do this like a lot of observational drawing and I feel super present when I'm doing that. And it feels really good. Like there's something so satisfying about it. Um, And there's like, like you said, this personality thing. I don't think I, I don't, I'm much more interested in that now than I ever have been. And um I don't know. Like I, well, like... I
0: took you to. I took you to that sculpture park in Warwick that, uh-huh. that artist Frederick Frank had built, yeah. and he's the sort of father of Zen drawing. Like he wrote like a number of books called like Zen Drawing, Zen Seeing, and his whole idea is all about observational drawing being a act of meditation. Yeah. And, and so I teach that, like, my sort of basic drawing class is basically like an observational, like, zen drawing class where it's all about just making a deep connection to, to presence and, and being with something and observing it, like, com- with all of your being and spirit.
1: That's so cool. It feels so good. It's just like... And it does. It
0: feels <laughs> it great. Feels,
1: it's like the opposite of most the things we're doing, I, or I feel like it's such a, such a like respite from the distraction of so much
0: of. I have a whole like secret practice of observational drawing.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Like, you know, I have like my regular professional art practice. You'd like see the work in, you know, exhibitions or whatever, but I have a whole other practice that's like, like a Zen drawing, from observation, usually like what was, you know, what's called like a blind contour drawing, yeah. like just totally with your eyes on the object, not thinking about the final, you know, outcome image.
1: Yeah, I I mean, I, something I'm hitting on in my work, which I'm curious how you think about it, like, so I'm doing that for a while now and I find it so satisfying and alive. And I'm like, I feel like, in a way like I'm like how do I bring that juice into the other work or something but without like um without like mm, corrupting it I guess because there's something so pure about it so to like try to make it into art in this other way feels like there's something I can't bridge about it
0: yeah but you can because what you're doing is you're accessing higher energy you're accessing like a finer energy So when you're doing that kind of observational drawing, you are opening up a space where you have access to a higher energy. And so if you can bring that into your own personal artwork, then you are bringing something that is an element from that into the other things that you do.
1: Yeah, that's what I'm trying to do. And I think like along with kind of this idea of things you were saying, like. It is like, I think the pleasure and the beauty of it is that I'm kind of forgetting myself. I'm just being myself, rather than trying to express this idea of who I
0: am. Well, actually, as we say in the Gurdjieff work, you're remembering yourself.
1: Mm, I love that.
0: Which is like, you know, that that literal idea of like remembering, like you're bringing yourself back together because we're always so sort of scattered and disparate. And so when you remember yourself, you actually bring yourself back together and you can then remember what it's like, your sort of more true inner self.
1: I love that. I'm gonna remember that
0: one. (laughs) Remember yourself always and everywhere, Ajeev said.
1: Wait, so let's talk about Ajeev a little more because I'm sure a lot of people don't really know about him And I was thinking about like, so like right after grad school, you had this like, Four de force solo show that was very based on Gurdjieff, um, images of Gurdjieff and his ideas. And then now you're kind of, I, my sense is you weren't actually practicing his his uh, work in uh, in terms of a spiritual practice at that time, but now you actually are involved in a community that, that works with that.
0: Um, well, that's sort of the great ironic way that life works. <laughs> yeah. I, I you know, grew up in Warwick, New York, which was the seat of a very important Gurdjieff group. And so I grew up with a lot of kids my age, whose parents were part of this Gurdjieff group. And they're always like the most like interesting kids and their parents were definitely like the most interesting people, like intellectuals, artists, crafts people. And so I was always fascinated with the Gurdjieff group. You know, we call them the Chardavoyne group because the, the, the place where their barn, where the barn was, where they met and did everything was on Chardavoyne Road. Mm-hmm. And, and so I was always really fascinated with the Chardavoyne group and, and their, the, the kids my age. And so when I was in grad school and doing different kinds of artwork, the professors would always say like, well, where are you in this work? Where's like your story or where's like your experience? And and that summer I came across a book that was my grandfather's called The Unknowable Gurdjieff. And the images in it were so arresting. And a lot of the stories and ideas were so cool that I started to think, wow, maybe let me make work about the lore and the power of Gurdjieff and the ideas and the, and the group in Warwick. And, and so I really became interested in using that as a jumping off point to make, to make artwork from, but I was never really, I mean, I read at that point, I was reading a lot of the Gurdjieff books and a lot about the ideas, but I had just come off like a long time living in Italy and really interested in, Catholicism and Catholic mysticism, like Saint Francis and Saint Teresa of Avila, and so I was not really interested in the Gurdjieff ideas particularly at that time. Mm-hmm. But but then when I moved to Warwick uh, two and a half years ago, coincidentally the house that that we bought is around the corner from the Gurdjieff group, mm-hmm. and they had an open house, and I went there, and I like you know met with all these people that I, a lot of them I've known my whole life but mm-hmm. to sort of see what they were doing and what what they were talking about and it was just the right time in my life where I was ready for a deeper spiritual practice and something to really like how to live life in a much deeper richer and real way and that's what the gergi work is sort of all about so it really hit me at like midlife. I mean, Carl Jung says midlife is always where you should really start developing a deeper spiritual practice. Totally. Um, And so it just sort of coincidentally happened that at midlife, I moved back to my hometown and happened to live right around the corner from this Gurjeev center. Mm -hmm. And so I've really found a, a interesting new spiritual life there. But... The cool thing about it is that the Gurjif work is all about living your life as like a mystic or a monk, but not having to live in a monastery or like do the rituals and things that 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 monks do. So you can practice the Gurjif work, but you can still be Christian. You can still be Jewish. Like it's all about awakening yourself and having a deeper connection to spirituality. Versus yeah. having a dog, like there's no dogma. There's nothing like you really like follow in terms of, you know, dogmatic ideas. Yeah,
2: that
1: makes, I mean, I think that's very, I don't know. It reminds me of like Ram Das and stuff too. Like talks about like, you know, everything is kind of like grist for the mill or like, like that we have to, like, it's not it's not this thing that's outside of regular life. It's completely interwoven with it and that we have to use everything as part of that. Like,
0: Yeah, well, that's why the, the Gurdjieff work is called the fourth way because it's not the way of the yogi. It's not the way of the monk. It's not the way of the fakir, which are three historical spiritual avenues to enlightenment. But the fourth way is take all of those ideas, take the three, you know, three brains, like the physical, the emotional, and the mental, and use them all together in your everyday life. Mm -hmm. So It's like, don't, you don't have to go live on a mountainside to have like a spiritual experience. You can just be like, you know, sweeping the floor and you can have a spiritual experience.
2: Yeah. Like also
1: Ram Dass talked about like earth school and like taking the curriculum and stuff. (laughs)
0: i definitely subscribe to the idea that like earth is like we're spiritual beings having a human experience Mm -hmm. and we we've come here to learn we've come here to grow we've come here to evolve and it's fucking hard like it it's hard work that's what we called the work you know it's it's definitely hard it's so much easier just to you know be caught up in being angry and being negative and lazy and cynical that that's easy actually it's really hard to to actual actually do work on yourself
1: i know and i'm glad you mentioned this thing about midlife because i'm feeling that too. this like which i think is so weird and interest. like yeah like young and different people talk about like midlife as being this opportunity for rebirth kind of but i feel like in our culture maybe especially with women but maybe all people it's seen as this like death or something or like end of youth and maybe it's all die
0: to be reborn so
1: yeah exactly like but i'm feeling like it's such a rich opportunity to have new meaning and a new deeper orientation and i'm really wanting to think that i well, i want to call my next show midlife actually because <laughs> it's such a, like if you just take the word midlife it's like you're in the middle of something it's actually really positive and expansive
0: yeah i mean like carl jung talks about how like the first half of life you're just like establishing yourself, you're figuring out who you are, you're just trying to make money and have a job and start a family. And it's all about like, superficial sort of building stuff. And then, you know, midlife is all about starting to turn away from that and actually thinking, what does it all mean? Like, why am I here? Like, how am I going to build something that lasts? How am I going to dig a deeper well instead of digging like a million wells all over your property you dig one really deep well and you get to that really pure water
1: yeah it's like turning inward and finding out who you really are outside of what other people's expectations or approval and things
0: and i find it hard to do that in new york city like i moving up to warwick into the countryside was really important for me to dig that deeper well, like I, I found in in Brooklyn, you know, I lived there for like fifteen, you know, seventeen years. I I mean, I loved it; it was amazing, but it was all about like that earlier part of life stuff. And and now I'm I'm interested in like digging that deeper well and not just superficially flitzing to like every little thing that's out there.
1: Yeah, I feel that. Like, I mean, it feels like. I feel like you're really thriving and it feels super right I don't know just your home life um, yeah. and just your relationship to home I was thinking about like I was reading a bit on your website there was this quote of Lumi Tan that said something about the home as a frame and I feel like the home is your frame in a way. like, And in, in a way, it's like, it always has been, like you were always returning to Warwick, like almost every week, like it felt like you really needed something that was there.
0: Yeah, well, I always felt like I needed to reset my energy. You know, I'm, I'm really a firm believer in the idea of like energies and that they get used up and you have to re establish them and refill them. And so I'd be like in New York City all week, like going to parties and openings and meeting people and working my ass off. And and then I just need to like come back to Warwick to my parents' farm for like two days just to sort of veg out and, and touch nature again and, and fill up in that way, re- restore my energy. and And so... Yeah, I've always had that as a touchstone. So, so moving back to Warwick actually is was really a, an amazing experience. Just being able to be in that more essential environment all the time.
1: Yeah. Did it, did it? Do you feel like that's something you always knew you would do, or was it a surprising?
0: Definitely. In fact, I'm amazed it took even this long, but I'm, I'm always about like waiting for the right thing. Like I probably could have moved upstate like 10 years ago, but I was always waiting for like the right companion, the right house, the right situation. And so, you know, it took a while for it to sort of all just happen the way it needs to happen instead of forcing it. And I always feel like that, that's where the best stuff happens. If you just sort of let it to shake out and so it took a while for me to move back here but because of that it all feels really right
2: yeah
0: even the living around the corner from the gurjeef group feels like really right i mean
1: it's not synchronicity i don't
2: know what is
0: exactly. so and also the other thing too is i live in this huge house with this huge property and a huge separate studio and I really don't pay all that much more than I did for a teeny little shitbox studio and teeny little like apartment in Brooklyn. So to me, it's almost like a no, it's, it's almost like I won the lottery, but didn't do anything. It's like, yeah. So to me, it's like, it's sort of, I've been telling all my city friends, I'm like, you know, you could have like a huge house and studio for what you're paying for a teeny little thing you know, in the city and really like dig that deeper well. Like really yeah. throw yourself into your work in a deeper and richer way. But you know, I I realize that some people thrive off the urban energy and the and city life. So, you know, to each their own. But
1: I mean, I feel like every time I visit you, I'm like, I have to do that also. But I don't think the time has quite come for me yet. Like it's in my three to five year plan, but it's just not I'm not all the pieces haven't yet come together.
0: Yeah. Well I feel like you you in a way, you and I are similar that, that you know, I love the urban sphere. I love the city and everything, but I'm also a very solitary person and I like to work by myself and you know and you've really been that way too. Yeah.
1: Do you think I mean I think I feel like we can both be very like um convivial and extroverted but in my heart i'm an
0: introvert do you feel that way totally i you know that and i've always chalked that up to sort of being a gemini Mm. is that i'm on the one hand i i'm very gregarious and i love a party and i love conversation but on the other hand i like want nothing to do with it and want to just be alone in my studio in my fantasy world just working and you know so i li- i like that i when i can do both like and i like that living up in warwick is close enough to new york city that i've always been able to come now to all my friends exhibitions and like go to their openings but then i get to come home and to the quiet and and so i like that that balance of things
1: yeah it really i think especially yeah like at a certain age it seems really like the best of both worlds to be able yeah in close enough proximity to visit but but to also have this beautiful home
0: town and country
1: mm-hmm.
0: important for me we talking about elliot smith and that we love elliot smith
1: yeah we'll talk about, <laughs> about elliot smith and then maybe quickly about your tarot stuff but yeah i was listening to a lot of elliot smith this weekend and i knew you like him too it's a real like vibe <laughs>
0: Well, for a year I went to Hampshire College and Elliot Smith went to Hampshire. Oh. and I remember that's when I got into him because I remember some kids were like listening to him and being like, Elliot Smith went to Hampshire, <laughs> you know. So he was like a, a mascot in a way. And and then I was totally devastated when he killed himself and I
2: know.
1: I was thinking how he was such a he was such a kind of genius of that time but I feel like he gets a bit of short shrift in relation to like Kurt Cobain or something but he like had his own genius and I don't know he really evokes the time for me of that moment well, me
0: too yeah and, and you know TM Davey and I also talk a lot about Elliot Smith together because he also loved Elliot Smith at the same sort of time period that like you did too and like it does become a little bit of a soundtrack of like the late nineties, like New York city, yeah. sort of, you know, vibe. Um, but yeah, and, and I probably like every two years now, I'll go through like a little Elliot Smith phase for like a week,
2: Yeah.
0: but then I sort of have to crawl myself out, you know, dig myself out of it <laughs> because oh. it can be psychological. Like, I, I definitely believe that sometimes when you surround yourself with a certain kind of energy, it, it can bring you down. Yeah or it can bring you up like so it's important to not just wallow in that kind of energy for too long or else you start to manifest it
1: i know i mean yeah music can really instantly do that but i actually i mean he's definitely emotional but i don't necessarily get sad listening to his music like but i know what you mean and i feel like at that time in my life i did really lean
0: into mopey music in their- oh, absolutely yeah i my whole high school life is like morrissey and the smiths and like woe is me no one loves me my, <laughs> you know i want the one i can't have yeah. you know that kind of narrative and i held on to that narrative like all through college and even through grad school of like oh woe is me like no one loves me like i'm a misunderstood like sort of weird sexual queer person and it wasn't until i sort of realized that maybe the music is creating this narrative the story that i'm like attached to yeah and i was able to, to break away from that that i was ended up i ended up being able to find like a real lasting relationship because i realized that i didn't have to identify so deeply with morrissey and the smiths yeah. And now I can listen to them again and 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 sort of have a little bit more detached feeling of it. But it used to be like this sort of overarching narrative of my life, and I think it it was detrimental. It was it held me yeah. back.
1: Totally. I mean, I don't. Wait, would you say you were a goth?
0: I wasn't goth. I was more. I would say I was more like a like a Morrissey gay. Yeah. You know, into like Oscar Wilde. Into like. <laughs> flowers and bicycles and glasses. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah a little bit a little bit more like twee a little bit but you know but I, I still liked a lot of the punkier stuff like the New York Dolls and Nina Hagen like some of the dark darker like weird 80s stuff and mm-hmm. like, you know I loved all the A4 like cocktoe twins and Dead can dance and that, which was sort of like gothy. And of course the cure is like one of my all-time favorite mm. bands. But I never was like D de- I was never like Sisters of Mercy, like
2: kind
0: of goth person.
2: Mm.
0: I mean, I love Bauhaus and that stuff, but but more sort of not not to like look that way. Yeah. Aren't you like,
1: don't you have a kind of Deep love for um, culture
0: club too. Yeah, well, I love that whole like gender bending, new romantics. Yeah. yeah. As well, like Lee Bowery and mm-hmm. Boy George, and there's a playfulness and a funness and like a weird queerness to it that it's always resonated with me as well. Definitely a child of like that 80s period. Yeah, that so that
1: that side feels a bit lighter too, like. I mean, it's, I don't know. It's all very
0: romantic and... But you need, but to me, that's like the Apollonian and the Dionysian. Uh, I feel like something like Cocteau Twins is more like dark and cerebral and sort, you know, and then like the Culture Club is sort of like lighter and sillier and like, you know, I, I've, I've always found myself vacillating between like the, the light and the dark sort of.
1: Mm-hmm. I don't... I only got into Cocteau twins kind of semi-recently, but I don't know them super well. But I I don't necessarily associate with darkness per se. I think of more just like extreme sensitivity or something. Like, which I love that, just like really And yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember like when we first met or early on, I mentioned like that I love the Cocteau twins and you were like, I don't like the cocktail twins because some kid in high school used to play them in art class and he was oh, like, no.
1: it was, my, it was, um, the other one you mentioned, the, um,
2: the lesbian sister. Oh, Indigo that? girl. Um, yeah. <laughs> that, are they lesbian sisters?
0: I don't know. No. <laughs> they're lesbians. They're not sisters. Oh.
1: <laughs> they, my art teacher who was like just super hippie, dippy, like, um, woman or, or maybe I wasn't the art teacher someone in class would play them
0: and i hated it i was not into it at all <laughs> well, i love the indigo girls because they they're so earnest they're so like real and they're so like heartfelt and and their music is just so from their deepest part that like uh-huh. i think that with anyone like i like there's so there's a wide range of like weird music that i like because if if it's really from the heart and it's really true to a point of view and like a vision. I can, I can dig that.
1: Yeah, I mean, me too. I just, for me, those they're a little too, like, granola or something. I don't know, but I know we both
0: love... was delicious.
1: Well, it is, it is. <laughs> I mean, but Sinead O'Connor, I feel like...
0: She's, like, my all-time. Like, yeah. I, I, if I could embody like a like a sort of archetype it's the sinead archetype like i don't even know what that means but like you know and she's sort of a total mess and i i don't want to be a total mess but like there's something about like her first like two albums that is so essential and so real it's like pieces. so passionate and like i don't know yeah she's
1: she's very intense and yeah
0: totally from the heart i don't know and that drives me like making my own artwork too is that like i'm just i really want to and strive to just beat to my own drum and that's what i tell like my students too i'm like you like i give them an assignment and if they do it totally wrong but it's like in their own way i'm like a plus 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 that's
2: cool
0: you now that's that's to me what's most important. Oh, look at that cat tail. I love cats.
1: <laughs> I know. That's what's most important to me, too. Like, um, I feel like sometimes you have to, like, trick yourself into it because sometimes you're trying too hard. Like, that's, like, the whole Tao thing in a way.
0: Wayne Dyer said, sell your cynicism and buy bewilderment. Mm. And I love that. Like, I love, like, because so many people, especially in the art world, are so fucking cynical. Like, if it's not like, if it doesn't look like it's supposed to be super intellectual, then it's, like, not cool. Or if it doesn't look like it's supposed to be all about, like, identity, then it's not cool. Like, there's yeah. so many people who are just so, like, cynical about what everything has to look like or be like or be about, and and they dismiss stuff sometimes when it is really heartfelt or really earnest. And. Yeah. And like Garth says, I just think that's really sad.
1: I know, like, I think it is, like, yeah, I think it's sad to be, like, it's, yeah, it is kind of uncool to be super sincere, but it's like, I feel like all I really want from artists is to be moved and to, like, feel something.
0: Yeah, it's like in Wayne's World when they didn't want to make the changes to the show, (laughs) you know, they, they ended up forfeiting their show because they didn't want to bow down to corporate sponsors.
1: Right, they had integrity.
0: I mean, I have a picture of Wayne and Garth in my studio next to my desk here because I feel like you could write a book like the Tao of Wayne and Garth, of just like how to live life with wonderment and, and ridiculousness and being really silly but totally true to yourself and, you know, striving for love and friendship and camaraderie. Yeah. Your
1: worldview is it encompasses all of these vastly different high-low things that you'd find that kernel
0: in. Exactly. Right, because some people have come to my studio and they see like uh, an image of like you know Euripides or something, and then they see a picture of Wayne and Garth and they're like, I don't get it. Like how like can you square this for me? And I'm like, they're all searching for their deepest truth. Yeah. They're all like getting to the heart of the matter.
2: Mm.
0: And that's what's most important.
2: I saw
1: this um, quote on your website that said, act so that there is no use in a center. Is that from the Tao?
0: No, that's actually Gertrude Stein. Oh. And it's interesting to say because Corey and I, have a sort of ongoing dialogue about what that means, <laughs> you know, like what is it? Yeah, mean? So that it's sort of like a koan, like it—it it sort of yeah. means nothing but everything at the same time. So we're always sort of discussing, like, well, you know, and like T.S. or is it T.S. Eliot who said, like, the, the center cannot hold. Oh you know, yeah. There's a lot, of, like, there's a lot of there's been a lot of talk in poetry over the millennia about like the center and like.
1: Yeah And,
0: and I, so, but I've always loved like act so that there's no use in a center, like act in a way that there's no centralized thought.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, act in this sort of like... Just this like chrysanthemum of meaning.
2: Hmm. It makes
1: me think of just kind of holding everything or something, there's no center and just kind of total connectedness
0: or something like that. Right. And in the same token, everything is completely connected.
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: That's that's like the foundation of esotericism and alchemy is like as above, so below. Like what everything is sort of affecting everything else.
2: Yeah. So yeah. I feel like it's like, as I um, get older, I feel like,
1: I mean, we're often self-centered, right? So like when you forget about yourself, there is no center. Like you're just part of everything. Yeah.
0: Well, and that's the thing too, is like we are all self-centered. I mean, everything, the world that we see is from our personal perspective. Yeah. I mean, that to me, one of the most important spiritual practices I follow other than the Gurdjieff work, is the Hawaiian mysticism, Ho'oponopono, mm-hmm. which believes that everything we perceive is sort of coming out of us and that we are the sort of center of the universe in terms of our perception. Mm-hmm. So anything that's happening out in the world is a result of our presence perceiving it. Yeah. And, and so the, they always say in Ho'oponopono, like, have you ever noticed that when there's a problem, you're always there? <laughs> you know, The things that seem like they're problems are only problems because you perceive them as being so. And you're there to perceive them as being a problem.
2: Right.
0: Um, so I find that that Ho'oponopono is definitely a really, really important part of my every day like every moment i practice ho'oponopono almost every moment of every day
2: can you say
1: just a brief description of what that is in case people don't know what that is
0: it's a hawaiian form of mysticism that believes that everything you're perceiving as a problem is because of like a wrong perception Mm -hmm. and misalignment with divinity and so throughout the day, you're in prayer saying, I love you, I'm sorry, please forgive me, thank you. And you're basically really saying, I love you, thank you for everything that's occurring in your life, because it's another opportunity for you to make peace with it, for you to accept it, for you to sort of right the wrong. And so the so you sort of are in prayer throughout the entire day everything that's occurring like i love you thank you like i love you for for presenting yourself to me thank you for presenting yourself to me um please forgive me for perceiving this as being something that's wrong or bad and it's about a transmutation of energy it's about turning something that's a problem and turning it sort of neutral like neutralizing
1: yeah or even like Um, into a, like, I feel like Eckhart totally talks about, like, imagine everything that happens is something you've chosen, like, even if it's something you thought was bad, maybe there's actually some way it's going to benefit you, and even though you wouldn't have chosen it.
0: Well, one of the major tenets of Ho'oponopono is that you are 100% responsible for everything that's going on in your life. Yeah. So, that, like, so, so the fact that like, I perceived Donald Trump as president was my, 100% my responsibility.
2: Right.
0: And the fact that I perceived that, that cake as being really delicious is 100% like my responsibility. Like I'm 100% responsible for participating in the existence of that in my world. And so this idea of taking 100% responsibility for everything is both really frightening, but also really liberating.
2: Yeah, I, I
1: agree. I mean, it's very radical. And I'm not sure if I can do it. I mean, I don't think I can do it 100%. But I, but I am very into the idea of, yeah, like trying to embrace the things that we might not have chosen.
0: It's far, it's definitely sort of far-fetched, but it, play, it comes a lot out of like this ancient Hawaiian mysticism, but it also the, the modern Ho'oponopono borrows a lot from esoteric Christianity and like Christ consciousness as well. Mm-hmm. If anyone's interested in it, you can look up like I, ha, I Haleakala Hu Len is one of the sort of more modern founders of Ho'oponopono. Um, And there's some sort of like weird stuff about it, but the essence of it to me is one of the most life-changing spiritual practices I can think of. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I have to get going because my parents are here and it's my mom's 79th birthday. Yeah. And we're having her over for dinner and I sort of need to get going, but...
1: Yeah, we had a good long chat, um, and, yeah. And I know you
0: wanted to talk about tarot cards, um, and doing tarot readings, but I think if anyone is interested in that, they can go. I have an Instagram page, which, where I do, like, mail, like, postal service tarot card Mm -hmm. readings. Like, I I do readings for you, and I send it to you in the mail with, like, a design and, like, Mm -hmm colorful fun stuff and yeah, so tarot, I and I do tarot through like a Union perspective, which, you know, I could I could talk more about, but I really have to go. Yeah.
1: I'll put a link in the show notes.
0: Ooh, chic. <laughs> well um, Jenny, I'm so glad we could do this because it's fun to sort of get our thoughts on record together.
1: Yeah, totally. And it felt like it went in a lot of places I didn't even anticipate and
0: Yeah, I loved it. I know, and we probably just could have talked for like hours on it. Yeah.